So Nick, I would like a live response from you and admitted oh, no. TypeScript fanboy from a tweet by Michael Rogers when he today said, TypeScript is the new Java. If that makes you happy, it's because it's true. If that makes you angry, it's because it's true. <laughs> First question is, does that make you happy or angry? Second question is, do you agree or disagree? Ooh, I... <laughs> me on the spot like this you know when i first started being forced to learn typescript i thought the exact same thing i was like this is java-ifying my code and i don't like it it's too verbose and i'm not being productive and i was especially salty on it because you spend a lot of time writing this type code that doesn't actually get run and it doesn't have any effect but that said i don't know i don't have a healthy relationship with java if i'm honest so i don't like comparing those because i love typescript so this makes you angry <laughs> it does the answer to my question <laughs> is angry he's angry yeah This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. They give software teams instant visibility into the quality and the performance of their software. And I'm here with John Daniel Trask, co-founder and CEO of Raygun. JD, talk to me about the joy a team feels when they're able to find and resolve an issue even before a customer has a chance to get upset or reach out to support about the issue. Talk to me about that. Well, I find it pretty exciting to be able to hit it off early. So and being able to tell people that you resolved something, so maybe they come through you know, and they do report an issue and you can say, cool, well, we don't need to ask you for any more context. We've got all the details and we can have this fixed tomorrow. It turns an at-risk customer into an absolute raving advocate. So that's a huge win. And then the other thing that was a little bit embarrassing we launched Raygun, but we had these other products and we instrumented them. And that's when we realized this less than 1% of our users would ever actually report a problem. And so you're sitting there thinking your software is actually not bad. And actually, <laughs> it's really, really bad. And that's hurting all of your conversion rates, business performance. You know, these aren't really dev tools, they're actually business tools. All right, if you want to see how this dev tool impacts the entire business, head to raygun.com to learn more and start your 14-day free trial, no credit card required. Join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every single day to deliver flawless experiences to their customers. Again, raygun.com. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. If you're new to the pod, don't forget to subscribe. Head to jsparty.fm for all the ways. And if you're a longtime party animal, thank you. We appreciate you listening. Check out our membership program at changelog.com slash plus plus. Drop the ads, get bonuses like extended episodes, and directly support the show. Thanks to our friends at Fastly for shipping JS Party all around the world to wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com. Okay, you know what time it is. It's party time, y'all. Hello, friends. Jared Santo here, your internet friend, and I am excited to have a fun segments show for you today. Joining me are JS Party regulars, Allie. What's up, Allie? Hey. And Nick. What's up, Nick? Hoy, hoy. Glad to be here. Glad to have the both of you. Today we are playing Story of the Week. We are playing Today I Learned. And I'm excited about X, where X is literally anything. Should we hop right into it? Definitely. Here we go. It's time to take a peek. It's time for the story of the week. 
just when you think that jingle's <laughs> over, there's a little coup de gras. Story of the week. This is where we share various news stories, discuss them, and then rank them by best to worst. Or I just made that last part up. We just move on after we're done. We don't do the ranking part. Nonetheless, we shall judge your submissions, even if I may have collected the most of these and just handed them out to people to talk about. So, Nick, what did I hand you to talk about today? Well, Jared, there's this Dino project, and it raised $21 million in funding. So, congratulations to them. Let's discuss. Congrats to Dino. So, we've talked about Dino previously. We've had shows with Dino folks go back in the feed. Ryan Dahl on the Changelog podcast. And Kits and Kelly. Yes, Kits and Kelly on the JS Party podcast. Mm -hmm. We've also used Dino a little bit. I've used it a little bit. Have either of you tried Dino out? Yes, a little bit. Allie? I have not, but I did see a conference talk about it at RemixConf, and it was really interesting, especially it was on Dino Deploy, and the speed at which you can deploy stuff on there is like unreal. It's like basically instant to get something relatively small deployed, which is wild, wild. That is wild. I think that is part of their commercial offering or their planned commercial offering is deploy service, but then also other things. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Is the deploy stuff part of their commercial offering, Allie? Yeah, definitely. That to me seems like their big business model from all that I can tell is that they have this serverless function deployment platform and that seems to be their big business model. But it seems like people are already using it too. Like I think Netlify is using them for their serverless functions. Mm. Netlify also listed on the group of people who invested in this round of funding. So $21 million from Sequoia Capital, Nat Friedman, former CEO of GitHub on the list, Netlify on the list, Automatic, creators and purveyors of WordPress.com. Amongst other things, Tumblr, Tumblr owners. What else? Pocket Cast. Are they really? That's so funny. Yeah, we're, Automatic owns tons of stuff. Wait, they own Pocket Cast? They own Pocket Cast, yes. Interesting. Yeah. It's a conglomerate now. Weird times. <laughs> wow, that's so funny. So, Ali, one thing you were saying before we started was that Dino kind of had the initial hype cycle and a lot of interest because, of course, the pedigree, the fact that Ryan Dahl had these regrets about what he did with Node to begin with, and that was like his chance to, for the big rewrite, rearrange the letters, change things up, <laughs> have it be similar but different in many crucial ways. And that, of course, generated a lot of interest and a lot of early use and people ch checking it out. And it seemed like for a little while things got quiet or people kind of quit, kind of went back to just, well, it was nice. I mean, I checked it out, but Node and Dino, at a surface level, I'm not building big, complex applications. There's not too much different between the two. But here they are. They're still raising money. They're still doing stuff. So what do we think? Are people going to start to like use this in real life soon, or are they? Thoughts? It seems like the serverless thing is a compelling use case for it, and it's just really fast. And uh, I'm excited about that. I think that that's where they can stay afloat with things. I'm also really excited about like specifically the way that you can compile Dino into like like executables that you don't need a runtime for. Yeah. Kind of like Go in that way. So it's like a a JavaScript solution to a uh, runtimeless binary that you can ship. So you can write your command line scripts in it without having to like, here's the script, go npm install. The world. My 10 million dependencies and then run it. 
Right. So you just install all the dependencies first and then ship those to them as one big blob. Yeah. Yeah. I think it says a lot that the like Twitter hype cycle doesn't really mirror right. everything, right? It's yeah. people aren't tweeting about it twenty four seven, so it falls out of your the front of your brain, I guess. Right. But then they're still doing stuff. They're still building a tool that's clearly going to help in some facet of the industry. And maybe it's not going to be, you know, like overnight that everybody's moving from their Node Express apps to Dino. But it seems like for building really complex things that need to be really performant, like deployment pipelines, maybe Dino is a really great option. Mm -hmm. Noteworthy that Dino did just receive one of its first big full stack frameworks in the open source world, Fresh, a next gen web framework for Dino. So some of the stuff that Node has, of course, because of the years and years of community building things, is just like all these tools that you can just get going with. Anytime you start brand new, fresh, you have to go, oh, I didn't mean to call it fresh again, but it's called fresh. <laughs> Anytime you start fresh, you need some fresh tooling. And so people are starting to build things and get inspired by Dino and, and do frameworks, et cetera. So that's a starting place. What was interesting to me is like in this tech scene, which you all talked about recently with K-Ball, the downturn, right? All of a sudden money is expensive and scarce. And here comes $21 million thrown at Dino. And so that's kind of impressive. Like they convince people to invest in them now. My guess is what I've learned a lot with these startups and announcing rounds is that a lot of that, maybe all of it, I'm not sure, this is just conjecture, was probably locked up and already invested. And they, they actually, a lot of times these rounds are closed for a while, but the companies just wait for like a strategic moment to make their announcement. Yeah. And so quite possibly like this money was all dedicated prior to the downturn. Maybe not, but likely. Yeah. There's a pretty good chance, I would say, that normally these announcements come after they get all the legal approvals and all that. And it was already on paper quite a few months ago. At least that's been my experience working at different startups is that yeah. you hear about these things way after they they happen internally. Which is great timing for the team and hopefully gives them a good runway to continue to build yeah. new stuff because they are consistently putting stuff out, you know? And so yeah. this will probably carry them through. All right, there you have it, Dino, raising money, building cool stuff, and time will tell. Are you using Dino? Are you checking it out? Holler at us, JS Party FM on Twitter, or reply in the comments. We'd love to hear from people who are actually using it. Maybe in replace, maybe they've left Node, and now they just like reach for Dino every time. We'd love to hear from you. All right, Allie, what you got? Story of the week. GitHub Copilot is no longer just a free beta type product. <laughs> they introduced the pricing model, so it's a real thing now. It's going to be $10 a month or $100 per year, and they do have free tiers for big open source projects and for students. And I think this is interesting in making waves on the internet because it's basically a model that's trained on the code that's hosted on GitHub. So all the code that's kind of uploaded right. by not GitHub themselves, but all these different contributors, and then they're charging it for it. So I think in general, I'm a very big proponent of like charging for developer tools because I think that people get locked into this like free open source model and then it becomes that open source is just something that people do on nights and weekends. But there are actually a lot of companies doing this. But then on the other hand, there's this kind of ethical 
weird gray area of it's basically just a model train on everybody else's code and they're charging for it. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you probably win this time because I think this has been the story. As we record uh, June 23rd, this has been the biggest story of this week with everybody commenting and sounding off their thoughts, whether or not they think it's worth the money, whether or not they think it's ethical of what GitHub slash Microsoft have done here, et cetera. Nick, where do you stand? Yeah, it is also kind of an interesting place because this is a tool that is, it's not really behind the scenes at all for a developer, right? It's right there in your face mm -hmm. all the time, suggesting things to you once you get it set up. And so they've been pretty much auto-approving everyone who wants to join the the beta. And I think that it's free until August sometime as well. So you kind of, it's the classic like drug model. You get a free taste and it's right there. Yeah, the first one's free. Yeah. Yeah. And there's still a 60-day free trial even after they start billing for it. And free for students, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, students and big open source projects are going to be continue to be free. It's something that once you, you get used to it and you... You get used to the way that it it suggests things to you or like how to prompt it in certain ways. Like for me, it solves the the blank canvas problem of just like I need to do something. I don't really know how to do it. I'll start at Stack Overflow and maybe think about how I do this. I can just write a comment, see if it gives me anything good. But it, it's something. It's not a blank canvas to go from. It's something. So on the whole training on open source code. So go back in the feed. We have a whole episode. We asked a lawyer about GitHub Copilot. So we have like the legal ramifications covered and it's very fuzzy in that regard. He doesn't actually think they're doing anything that's illegal. That was my summation of Luis's take on that, but definitely go listen to the detailed conversation yeah. in terms of just like, I mean, there's legal and then there's ethical, right? And these things overlap, but they're not one-to-ones. Yeah. And so we're talking about whether or not it's ethical. So from my perspective, I think they should have limited it to permissive licenses. I think they opened up a can of worms by training against GPL licenses. That being said, I don't personally have a problem with let's train a model on all the open source code and create a cool tool around that. I feel like they're adding a lot of value. They're not simply reusing. And... As an open source denizen, I just don't really, I can't get worked up about this. I know there's lots of people that are worked up. Yeah. It just doesn't really bug me that much. I kind of agree too, especially since so many GitHub projects are on the free tier that people are not paying for GitHub to host their code in the first place. So I think that's another argument as well. Mm -hmm. Like I've worked at companies that have had like GitHub Enterprise or a professional GitHub instance or whatever. And I, I think that that's, Something that a lot of companies are doing, but a lot of these like projects that it's training off of might not have fall under that too. Right. And something I learned from Natalie Pistonovich on GoTime is that because it's OpenAI's model and GitHub is creating the tooling using OpenAI Codex, a bunch of other companies can build their own co-pilots and are building them using the same data, the same models. And so that is not going to be like a GitHub slash Microsoft competitive advantage. That's like everybody can have that, build from there, and then compete on integration, compete on the way it works, et cetera. And so we should be seeing maybe compete on price, right? Come out with free slash cheaper. And so I think that's going to be good for all of us is to have that competition. Yeah. It's probably not that hard to build either, to be honest. I could do it in the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're, you're teeing up my next one there, Jared. All right, go. Along those lines, AWS has announced in now in preview, Amazon Code Whisperer, an ML-powered coding companion. Ooh. 
as of today. So that's just fresh today. I haven't heard of this. Yeah. So uh, disclaimer, Allie works for AWS. So put that out there. Opinions all your own, I assume. <laughs> yeah. And I'm also like very <laughs> removed. This is the first time I'm hearing about it too. So, <laughs> so you just found out about it on the show. You didn't get the memo. Okay. So Nick, is this using OpenAI Codex as well? I don't know. I didn't see that as I was scamming. You're scamming? Why are you out there scamming people, Nick? Scanning the art. <laughs> as I was scanning it, I, I scanned quickly to see if it would support my workflow, which it does not because unlike Code Copilot, it does not support Vim or NeoVim. So I won't be trying it anytime soon, but it does the prompts and the way that it responds does look very similar. So quite possible we will try to follow up. Maybe if somebody knows the facts on that, let us know for a follow-up. One thought I had about the, for the people who are super mad that all of this stuff is trained against open source, publicly available code, is couldn't you react to that by creating some sort of a subterfuge campaign where you just upload thousands and millions of really bad programs to GitHub? And maybe even write a bot that would just write bad code or, you know, hire me. I can crank it out. Pretty sure that's happening. And then just upload all that and be like, take that codex, train on this. And then you just, you're just tanking the, the tool, aren't you? I mean, couldn't you do that? I'm pretty sure that they don't need a bot for that. There's plenty of bad code out there. <laughs> yeah, it would be a pretty funny one, though. That would be awesome. Bad code. I prompted, I was writing a shell script just the other day, just two days ago. And in the shell script, I wanted to, I wrote a comment like, now I'm going to clean up the home directory with like all of the, you know, the extra files added in there. And it suggested a function that was literally rm-rf dollar sign home. So there's lots of bad code out there. So you ran that and then, then what happened? Yeah. <laughs> I started seeing the matrix. It was amazing. That reminds me of that episode of The Office where Michael and Dwight are driving directly into that lake. Have you guys watched The Office? And the the AI assistant, right, the the car GPS was telling him to go straight and Dwight's in the passenger seat yelling like, stop, stop. And Michael just has to, he just drives directly into a lake because the turn by turn directions just told him to. So kudos to you for not actually running that thing against your home directory. <laughs> All right, moving on. We have our third story. This one I thought was kind of cool. The Brave search engine, the Brave browser now has a search engine. That's not news. They've had it for a little while. It's been kind of experimental trying to compete with Google, DuckDuckGo, and friends. And I used it for a little while. It was kind of like ho-hum. It's there. It's like, I think, maybe the default in Brave now, but you can switch to the other ones. Until I learned of Brave Search Goggles, which is a brand new offering, an open source deal, where you can actually modify and filter, apply some sort of goggles, so to speak, to all your Brave searches. And not only can you create these filters, but then you can package them up, share them with the community, and then have like single click buttons where you search brave search function with these filters on. And so the examples that they have on the homepage is you can create a brave search where it's called no Pinterest. So you can basically re-rank the results to remove all pages or threads hosted on Pinterest. That's just one example. You could have a search that's focused around left-leading sources. If you want to just continue a, <laughs> an echo chamber, you could also do that on the right side. And you can only have right-leaning sources by ranking results to boost content from 
one of these new sources. There's another one that focuses in on tech blogs. There's one called 1K Short, where instead of showing like the 1,000 biggest sites that it hits, it shows you the 1,000 smallest sites. And so all these different ways that you can tweak and change the results and then save those off almost like bookmarks to kind of invent your own little search engine each time, which I thought was kind of interesting. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. I have uh, solved this in many ways, not like by tweaking what it returns, but just by hiding what gets returned in other search engines. Oh, okay. With like extensions and such, you know, the, I don't want to name any websites, I guess. <laughs> That start with W or three or a combination of that. <laughs> You're pretty close now. Do you want to just close the loop on that? W3 schools. Thank you. Or experts exchange. Experts exchange. I mean, sorry. That was one. Experts exchange. <laughs> That's literally how it's spelled. I mean, talk about a domain hack. It's like hacking yourself. <laughs> All right. So that's Brave Search Goggles. Check it out. We will link to the GitHub page that explains how it works how you can create your own syntax, how you can share the goggles with the world. It's kind of cool. It's just like a custom URL that you pass in in front of the actual search query into the URL. So these things are very like web-friendly, the way they built this, which I think is kind of neat. You know, nobody's really been able to chip away at the dominant search engine, even though the results are like demonstrably worse. I've used DuckDuckGo for years. It's just kind of been like, it's there. It's just not Google, so I appreciate it. But it's not like it wows me with its results. And I end up having to do the pound G uh, quite a bit to get to a Google result because I just know it's going to be the first hit and then it is. So there hasn't been much innovation. Like that was privacy focused. This one's also privacy focused. It feels like that's becoming a thing that's going to be needed to go up against Google search. But it seems like this, like hyper customization, hackery, providing like a completely different experience than what Google's providing might be a way that we can get better searches in our lives. So thought it was cool. Okay, should we do one more? Let's do one more. Allie, close us out here. Yeah, so one fun one, or I guess it's more nostalgic than anything, is that the Atom text editor is shutting down. I haven't used it in years and years since like VS Code took over. But I used to use it as my primary text editor for years. And so it's a little bit Mm -hmm. bittersweet. makes me feel old that my first text editor, or definitely wasn't my first text editor either, but an old one is shutting down. Yeah. Yeah, this was kind of one of those things where it's like, obviously eventually going to happen. But the day it did, we all were kind of like, oh no. Yeah, as soon as Microsoft acquired GitHub, it seemed inevitable that they weren't going to keep developing VS Code and at the same time. But... Atom did lead the way for VS Code and for Atom Shell, right? Which became Electron. And TreeSitter is another thing that came out of Atom, which is like a like a syntax tree for, for source code for like a single file. And that's now built into NeoVim. And so like the fruits of that labor have expanded beyond just that editor, which is fantastic. And um, it was a great project. Yeah, super innovative, leading the way, especially in like browser or web tech based native tools. And the fact that it gained a lot of interest, it was used by many people. I used it for a little while. It was never quite as fast as sublime text, just like VS code isn't either. So I never, it never stuck, but uh, super appreciated all the work there. And, and I agree with you, Nick, as soon as we knew that Microsoft owned GitHub and VS code was like 
so, so dominant in terms of developer interest. It just really makes sense to continue both. Yeah. But it does look like the team behind Adam have started a new editor written around Rust, and it's called Zed. Yes. Zed's not dead, despite what Pulp Fiction might tell you. <laughs> so it's also not ready for prime time yet. So I think uh, we had Nathan Sobo on the changelog years ago talking about Adam. And he's agreed to come back on to talk about Zed when he's ready. And he says Zed's not quite ready yet. So that'll happen. But always interested for people who are innovating in the editor space, because even if you don't use it like that, innovation ends up pushing other people to change, adapt, you know, improve their editors. So we'll be interesting to watch. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sourcegraph. They recently launched a new feature called Code Insights. Now you can track what really matters to you and your team in your code base, transform your code into a queryable database to create customizable visual dashboards in seconds. Here's how engineering teams are using Code Insights. They can track migrations, adoption, and deprecation across the code base. They can detect and track versions of languages or packages. They can ensure the removal of security vulnerabilities like Log4j. They can understand code by team, track code smells and health, and visualize configurations and services. Here's what the engineering manager at Prezi has to say about this new feature. Quote, as we've grown, so has a need to better track and communicate our progress and our goals across the engineering team and the broader company. With Code Insights, our data and migration tracking is accurate across our entire code base and our engineers and our managers can shift out of manual spreadsheets and spend more time working on code, end quote. The next step is to see how other teams are using this awesome feature. Head to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link will be in the show notes again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. Allie had to hop off during the break because she wasn't feeling well. So feel better, Allie. I hope you're not too sick. And if you can shoot Allie uh, some kind words, she's a spittle on Twitter. See how she's doing. Nick and I are going to power through and we're going to share things that we've learned. I got a story that I'm going to tell. You're going to love it, baby. Think it's well. I only learned it today. P-G-I-L. Want to go first or you want me to go first? You go first. Okay. So today I learned, technically yesterday, by way of Simon Willison, who actually shared this on his TIL subdomain of his blog where he shares things he's learned. This is really cool. It's a one-liner for running queries against CSV files with SQLite. So I'm not going to share the entire one-liner, but basically as long as you pass to SQLite 3, the command line tool, this argument for the mode to be CSV, and then take a CSV file and import it, you can then pass that in without any sort of modifications, just pass the CSV file in, and then just run an in-memory version of SQLite that will just run you know, store it in memory until the command executes and then disappear immediately. 
and run arbitrary SQL queries against it, just like it was a database. And so it goes and makes all the tables in memory and stuff, and I don't know, it's fancy, fancy. And then it just all disappears when you're done, and it just gives you your result of running that query. So Simon found that out. It's super cool. I'll share the actual link in the show notes so you can see the one-liner itself. But it's one of these things where I was like, dang, I wish I knew that before. I'm glad I know that now. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. One thing I do often for, is it JS Danger? No, it's for front-end feud, is we get all of the responses in via Typeform. And then Typeform allows you to export to CSV or .xlsx or whatever. Mm -hmm. So actually, I think it is a CSV. And then I'll open that up with numbers, and I will clean it up and normalize, you know, because we're trying to aggregate. In the case of a survey like that for front-end feud, you're trying to aggregate the top answers. But it's always a text field. It has to be. Like if we say, where do you go to code when you're not at home? We can't provide drop-downs, you know? It has to be free text. And so we get back ridiculous differences, you know? So there's like this normalization step where it's like maybe you said, I go to the beach, and then somebody else just wrote beach. It's like, well, those are both beach. But one of them said, I go to the beach, and the other one said beach, right? So there's like this data cleansing process that I go through and just kind of like manually massage things into the right order. And then I want to query it. Well, now it's a stinking numbers file, right? So I export that to CSV, and now I have everything clean in a CSV file, but I want to query it with SQLite. And so then I take the CSV and I convert it to a SQLite database, and then I open it in the SQLite command, and then I run my queries. And then I do this over and over for each column, because each column is a question. And so it's just too many steps. And TIL, I don't have to do all those steps. I can just take that CSV, I can run this one liner and put my queries in there and just get immediately spit out the answers without having to go through conversion, enter a program, run a query, exit the program, conversion. So I'm kind of excited. Yeah, that looks really cool. I love tools like this that just make it easier to work with with data in different ways. 100%. And SQLite is so versatile mm -hmm. and so old. I mean, it's been worked on for so many years that there's like all these little hidden features in it that you would never know because they're like hidden behind this command line flag, you know? Yeah. That's neat. So very thankful for Simon Willison for exposing that to the world and teaching all of us so that we can do things a little more productively and share that with you all as well. Hopefully it'll help you. So that's mine. What about you? Mine is kind of along the same lines. Tell me, Jared, have you ever used a command line utility called FZF? Fuzzy File Finder or something? Uh, yeah. Yes, I have. Fuzzy Find. Yes. Yeah, I integrate that into like everything. So like I can hit anywhere to get like command, like as I'm typing, if I want to autocomplete like a path to a file, I just hit control T and then I just start typing the file name and it'll fuzzy find a list down to exactly what I want. And then just once I hit enter, paste that the path to that file in right there. Or I can hit control R to search through my history, fuzzy find through my history and find things. Oh, okay. So you've replaced it like where grep would be, or it's not even grep because grep goes into files. Does FCF search inside the files or just the, in this context or just the file names? It doesn't do any of that. And it also kind of does all of that because it doesn't do any of that. <laughs> okay. I'm intrigued. It does nothing and everything. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you can just take anything and pipe it to FZF and then fuzzy find through that. I see. So you can take your grep results and fuzzy find through that. So if you take a directory list or a list of directories and then FCF it, you're basically doing a file name search or directory search. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. But if you take the contents of your file, like if you cat a .ts file and send that to FCF, now you're searching yeah. word for word or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I do do that through, I use a, a tool called ripgrep to find things. It's like a Rust-based, you know, ACK or Silver Searcher or mm-hmm. one of those variants, like a better, a beyond grep, not better than grep. And you just pipe the results. Well, they're trying to be better than grep though, right? Otherwise they wouldn't. Uh, yeah. What's the point? I think ACK's URL used to be better than grep.com yeah. or something like that. And now it's beyond grep just to be a little nicer because it doesn't need to have that rivalry, you know? Right. (laughs) Anyway, that just so cool. And my TIL is not FZF because I've been using that for years, but I was teeing that up as a way to visualize what I'm about to show you. Have you ever heard of another tool called JQ? JQ for searching in JSON. Yeah. Yes. It's like a query language. So it kind of ties into what you were talking about a little bit. Yeah. But it's for JSON files. And so you can type the syntax and search through a JSON file and, and get out like a specific piece of that. You could modify the JSON file in, in different ways. But when I use that, I constantly have to have the reference open to, to figure out what I'm actually doing. There's also like a online tools that let you like paste some JSON in one side and then write a query and it'll show you the results on the other side. Kind of like a tool that you'd use for like doing regular expressions. Mm-hmm. And that's really cool. But like kind of Marrying the two of those together is a tool that I just found the other day called JQQ. Oh. And it is a visual wrapper around JQ that kind of does the FZF type thing where as you're writing out your query, it's live showing you like a preview in like virtual text of exactly what would get returned by what you're you're querying as you go. So you can kind of use that as a nice tool to build out your JQ syntax or your JQ query and in real time, get that feedback. That sounds super useful because I've never found JQ syntax to be good for me. (laughs) How do I say it? I didn't want to say it. (laughs) Easy. Well, just for me, it's not like blaming anybody. It just doesn't make sense in my head. No. I'll just cat my JSON and pipe it into grep and find what I'm looking for or something or open it up in sublime text, (laughs) which handles JSON files quite easily and do command F inside of there. Yeah. Because every time I have to use JQ, I have to feel like I'm learning the query language for the first time because I use it infrequently. I think if I use it daily, it would be less so. So it sounds like this is really great for discovering how that query language works more in a tactile way. Yeah, absolutely. So that's cool. JQQ. All right. In lieu of Ali's TIL, I have another idea, which is today I responded to Michael Rogers' tweet. So Nick, I would like a live response from you and admitted. Oh, no. TypeScript fanboy from a tweet by Michael Rogers, former JS Party panelist, maybe even future JS Party panelist, but hasn't been on in a while, when he today said, TypeScript is the new Java. If that makes you happy, it's because it's true. If that makes you angry, it's because it's true. So (laughs) first question is, does that make you happy or angry? Second question is, do you agree or disagree? Ooh, I... Hot takes. TypeScript is the new Java. Put me on the spot like this. Your thoughts? You know, when I first started learning TypeScript or being forced to learn TypeScript, I thought the exact same thing. I was like, this is Java-ifying my 
my code and I don't like it because it's too verbose and I'm not being productive. And I was especially salty on it because you spend a lot of time writing this type code that doesn't actually get run and it doesn't have any effect. Right. But that said, I don't know. I don't have a healthy relationship with Java, if I'm honest. So I don't like comparing those because I love TypeScript. So this makes you angry. <laughs> it does. The answer to my question is angry. He's angry. Yeah. Because <laughs> you like TypeScript, but you don't have a healthy relationship with Java. Yeah. My only Java experience is working on a Struts 1 application, which was yeah not fun. I quickly went over to the JavaScript side because I didn't want to. I just did not like it at all. I use Java just enough to know that I never want to use this language again. And I quickly went to other things and stayed elsewhere and have managed to avoid it my entire career since that point. And so that's also my tactic with TypeScript. (laughs) 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 But do you think, okay, so that's your hot take. It makes you a little angry, but you thought that yourself. So you think his comparison, you think him saying TypeScript is new Java, you think it's inappropriate or do you think that he's onto something there? Like, whether you like it or not, there's something to it. I mean, I don't know. You don't have all of the baggage of, of Java, right? You, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So there's your hot take. He doesn't know. He's angry. He doesn't know. You get the benefits of like to write TypeScript. I, what do I have to know? I have to know how to use Node a lot. Like I have to know JavaScript. It's not going to save you from learning JavaScript. You know what I don't have to know? I don't have to know Maven. I don't have to know Gradle. I don't have to n- public static void main args whatever args string array i don't have to know any of that i just start writing a script and if i want to add some types to it i add some types and it makes it better for me when i come back to it for sure but like all of those bad things aren't there so i've come around i also think that typescript has gotten a lot better with its tooling it was pretty rough in the like the 1.0 days for sure can you tell me what you'd have to type in order to, in typescript to export a default function that has a certain return value or something like what would that be? It would be export default function, whatever. And then you can name it, whatever, or not name it. And then you could just implicitly let it figure out the type of the return based on what you return. You don't necessarily have to give it a return type. So export default function main, and then some sort of, <laughs> doesn't that sound a lot like public static void? You forgot the async in there. Yeah. All right. <laughs> But that public static void main is inside of some class that you have to have, right? Because everything has to be a class in Java. Truth. All right, you've acquitted yourself quite well. Take that, Michael Rogers. They're different, okay? Nick Neasy says so. (laughs) All right, let's take a next break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. Millions of Square sellers use the Square app marketplace to discover and install apps they rely on daily to run their businesses. And the way you get your app there is by becoming a Square app partner. Let me tell you how this works. As a Square app partner, you can offer and monetize your apps directly to Square sellers in the app marketplace to millions of sellers. You can leverage the Square platform to build robust e-commerce websites, smart payment integrations, and custom solutions for millions of businesses. And here's the best part. You get to keep 100% of revenue while you grow. Square collects a 0% cut from your sales for the first year or your first 100 Square referred sellers. 
That way you can focus on building and growing your Square customer base and you get to set your own pricing models. You also get a ton of support from Square. You get access to Square's technical team using Slack. You get insights into the performance of your app on the app marketplace. And of course you get direct access to new product launches. And all this begins at changelog.com square. Again, changelog.com square. All right, we're going to close up this conversation with a fun little segment where we just share things that excite us currently. So we call this I'm excited about X, where X is literally anything. Nick, what are you excited about these days? Well, I just got back from Amsterdam and the JS Nation and React Summit conferences where I was there for JS Party. And one thing that was introduced there that was really cool and it's out on YouTube now, is the Svelte Origins documentary. And I think that it's a fantastic watch. These types of documentaries that are just like really high quality interviewing people that we've had on this show, you know, Swix is prominently interviewed in there. Amelia Wattenberger is also interviewed in there. Nice. So that's really cool. And it's just super well done and it gets you excited about these things. And I've never used Svelte, but I'm excited about Svelte and... I'm happy that it exists and I want to use it. But even though I've never used it before, I was fascinated by watching this half hour documentary and I think you should check it out. Yeah. Is this by the Honeypot team or is this a different one? So I don't know the story, but yes, it's Offer Zen. And I think that it's like they're now doing those documentaries for Offer Zen instead of okay. Honeypot or something like that. Yeah. Super cool. I mean, I very have been very impressed by these documentaries. I know there was one about Elixir. I think there was one about, was it Node.js? I don't know, they've done a, a handful. Mm -hmm. View, I'm pretty sure View has one. View.js, a documentary. So yep. they're practiced at this. And they're like, it's like a professional video team. These are like, this is like a documentary, right? I mean, yeah, you could throw it on Netflix. Netflix for programmers, <laughs> which is basically YouTube, I guess. They go, and they go like all over the world for these. Like to put this together, it's like, as far as YouTube videos go, it's a high budget YouTube video that is like, they went and interviewed um, Orta Therox, formerly of the TypeScript team. Mm. And they interviewed him in his office at home. And you could see how he works. You could see how other folks in their, in their offices work. And it's just a really high, high quality documentary. And they take a long time to produce as well. I know when we had Rich mm -hmm. Harris on the show last, which I'm just frantically searching to find out when it was. Back in December, episode 205, so much svelte goodness. Amelia and Amel were on that episode. And when we were recording it, Amelia had already been interviewed for this. Oh, really? Yeah. So I just know that it takes a long time for these to finally get put together, especially if you're traveling around the world getting these interviews. And I think Rich had already been interviewed for it back then as well. And that was like six months ago. So oh, wow. who knows how much effort, time, and thought have been put into these a super cool thing how fun would it be to have an open source project that's so beloved that somebody makes a documentary about it that has to feel pretty good absolutely we should start one what should we do oh <laughs> i to think of something funny <laughs> <laughs> okay let's not start one that was our big chance nick yeah i know <laughs> kind of along these lines though i'll throw out like another youtube channel that does similar things but not um 
not like developer focused, although it is kind of very adjacent, is Noclip. Have you ever watched any Noclip documentaries? No, I don't know about this. These are video game documentaries and they are fantastic. They're like, I watched one about Doom, like it's just called Doom Documentary and there's a couple of parts to it. Okay. But they also have one that's like the story of CD Projekt Red or a Half-Life documentary. And it's not just like, you know, them documenting themselves playing a game. Like for the Doom one, they went to id Software and they interviewed John Romero and talked about what went into it. And they talked to the the composer of the music. And I think Mick Gordon is his name. And like just talked about what went into that. And as I've been playing games, because I'm very late to the video game scene, I've been watching these Noclip documentaries mm-hmm. for these games that have been out for years that I'm just now getting around to. And it's just a fun like supplemental to it. And I'm just fascinated by like the stories that go into how those games get made, how they get the voice actors that they want or totally things like that. And so, yeah, some of my favorites are the doom one, the Hitman one, and there's a fun like paranormal game called control that they have one on as well. Definitely. We'll have to check that out. Link that up for us. We'll get into the show notes for folks. No clip video game docs. Very cool. Well, I brought a couple of things that I'm excited about. One online, one offline. Let's start in meat space. I'm excited about Can Jam. Have you ever played this game? Can Jam. Yes. Is that with a Frisbee? And you... Yes. And the trash cans? Yeah. It's so much fun. I have that in my garage right now. It's super fun. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's summertime here in the States and people are starting to have barbecues and here comes 4th of July. So there'll be a lot of outdoor activities going on. <laughs> And this Can Jam game couldn't be any simpler. It's effectively two trash cans. They're not actually trash cans. They're just like plastic. But you could make it, you know, with a couple of trash cans. Yeah. With a kind of a mailbox looking slot cut out of the side of each. And you set them anywhere from like 15 to 25 feet, depending on how good you are at Frisbee, apart from each other with the mailbox slots facing each other. And it's two teams. You stand on either side of the, of the cans and you have a Frisbee that you're just throwing and you're trying to throw it either into the slot, which is an instant win, or into the top of the deal, trash can, can. <laughs> the can, <laughs> just forgot how to use words, which is like three points or something, or hit the outside. Anyway, there's a point system. On the other side, you're trying to work with your teammate to help direct it to the can. So like if the person misses with the Frisbee, because it's not very easy, you can like slap it at the can to get points as well. Just one of these games that are so simple that you think, <laughs> why didn't I think of that? And yet so brilliant that yeah. you're like, I want to play this all day long. <laughs> and so Can Jam, we'll link up the main website if you haven't heard of it. It's cheap. It's actually easy to travel with because the plastic cans just like unconnect and you can lay flat and then you're basically just carrying a frisbee with you so it's really portable Mm -hmm. take it to the beach take it camping what have you can jam so fun so exciting the sophisticated cornhole yes (laughs) for people who would prefer to throw out trash cans yeah yeah just the sophisticated folks (laughs) so can jam is my offline i'm excited to play that here over the summer break and then my online is dot. Co. Have you heard of this website, lofi.co? I have not. So if you are into lofi music while you're coding or while you're writing or while you're studying or whatever you're doing, there's always playlists on Spotify and there's YouTube channels that are just like 12 hours of lofi, right? 
Well, lofi.co is an in-browser experience where you can set up different circumstances. So it's like a cool coffee shop and it's all hand-drawn and kind of animated. Or it's like a street corner and you can play lo-fi music as well as like turn on rain and traffic and people typing. And just right there in a browser tab, craft your own environment for productive work. In the browser, you can also upgrade for like 20 more scenes and sign up and blah, blah, blah. I haven't done any of that. I just load up lofi.co, hit play, turn on the rain, and forget about it. So very exciting. I think potentially they can turn this into a money-making endeavor. Pretty cheap. It's like 3 bucks a month or $100 for lifetime access. Get you like wallpapers, Pomodoro timer, a notepad, stuff that I don't really care about, but like cool add-ons to support their work. And it's just a really cool in-browser little web app that plays lo-fi music for you. Yeah, that's really cool. I have never really coded to lo-fi music. No? How about like rain sounds and lightning and stuff? Eh, Yeah, occasionally, although I don't know. (laughs) I'm very random with my music and... Lately, it seems like I'm Abba. I'm never out of a meeting enough, long enough for me to mm. turn on anything like this. That's kind of sad. I have a similar struggle where, you know, I'm editing or producing podcasts so much that requires me to actually be playing those sounds. So like I'm playing our music yeah. or I'm listening to the conversations and I'm editing and stuff. And so that's like very workflow similar to coding in that you zone in and get into it and you're like mm-hmm. engrossed. Only it completely requires your ears to be the entire time. Yeah. Whereas coding is kind of the opposite, right? You can disengage your ears if you want to. And so when I do have a coding sesh set up, I'm like, I'm ready for something because I miss my music. Like I don't get to listen to music as often anymore because I'm so often producing a podcast that when it comes time to actually code, I'm ready for something like this. Yeah, I love it. It seems worth checking out just for the wallpapers alone, even if you're not going to. To use that? You said that you can get these as wallpapers? Yep. If you sign up, yeah. you can download them as wallpapers. What's cool about it is it's completely ad-free. It's unlimited music streaming. So it's not the kind of thing where they like really hold you hostage right away. I found another cool one a while back called maybe Brain FM yeah. or something. And there's a lot of studies that like this stuff actually does help you be productive and get in the zone. Like this kind of background noises and music like this. Yeah. And so Brain FM, I think, was like one that like gets you, but it was so much like always upselling you on buying the thing. And I like how this one's like, hey, just chill, listen to it. I mean, they're competing with, you can watch, there's YouTube channels that just this all day long. And it's completely free, you know, maybe with ads. Yeah. And then Spotify also free, but with ads, unless you've upgraded. This one's just like completely free, completely unlimited. Come, ch- come hang out, listen to our tunes. And then like, hey, want some wallpapers? You know, occasionally I listen to other podcasts. How dare you? I know. (laughs) But one thing I I did learn from one of them was like somebody, I can't remember exactly, like I'll I'll try and find the link for the show notes, but on the podcast, she mentioned that she puts on like a four hour video from YouTube that is just a guy working at his desk. And it's just like if he were on a Zoom call. Wow. They don't talk. He doesn't talk. She doesn't talk to him, but... When he gets up to take a break, she like, you know, stretches or takes a break. So she takes a break when he takes a break? Yeah, yeah. It's just like the... Like their coworkers. You know, the working from home, but feeling like you're gotcha. actually there. You're maybe working with, working alone, but with someone else, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
what if you have to use the restroom and he's not ready to get up yet? I mean, you're just kind of, <laughs> you don't want to be rude. <laughs> Hold it. Yeah. I, that's the the benefit. You can just pause. <laughs> pause the video. Yeah. I wish I could do that in real meetings. <laughs> that's kind of interesting. A little weird. I'm not going to lie. A little bit weird, but you know, whatever floats your boat, whatever gets you productive, I guess. That's the thing though. I, I love that there's so many different ways to like cope, fight <laughs> the procrastination or the, the sense of feeling isolated or alone. There's different ways to do that. And there's different ways to help you with your focus, whether that's right. brain FM, whether that's lo-fi, whether that's heavy metal video game music. I mentioned Doom before. I've been listening to the Doom 2016 soundtrack, mm. which is like, it's okay. Like there's a lot of cutscenes with like demon speaking, which is not super great, but <laughs> that might ruin your flow. I can't go really high BPM when I'm thinking because it's just like, it tends to get me agitated or uh, mm -hmm. too excited. I need to kind of be a little bit more mellow. Yeah, yeah. And the demons, the, I don't like the demons while I'm trying to think either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've mentioned it before. I know I have. But like my go-to soundtrack is the Westworld TV show soundtrack. Oh, you have mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like piano versions of popular songs. Yeah, that's super cool. Have you ever listened to the string quartet? The yes. same thing, only it's all, yeah, it's all strings. Oh, yeah. But they're always doing popular songs. Very cool. <laughs> Plus, most of the good songs, you take the lyrics out, the song's actually better. That's just my, that's my opinion. Yeah. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, we will link up all the things. Can Jam, Lo-Fi, JQQ, Svelte Documentary, other things. I can't remember. We've talked about so much. And that's what we're into right now. If you are excited about something that's an X, where X is literally anything. If you want to tell us about it, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know in the comments. You can tweet at us as well, at JSPartyFM. Nick is at Nick Nisi. I'm at Jared Santo. And that's all I got, Nick. You got anything else? That's it. All right. On behalf of Nick Nisi, I'm Jared Santo. This is JS Party, and we'll talk to you all next week. Earlier, I mentioned Ryan Dahl's guest appearance on the changelog. It was a super interesting look into Dino and what he's doing differently from Node this time around. We even asked him if he regrets any of his decisions so far with Dino. Here's what he had to say about that. It's hard to make software and not make mistakes, of course. Totally. <laughs> I mean, this is going to be very controversial, but the TypeScript aspect of Dino, Dino has TypeScript compiled into it, is super nice, very friendly, very nice to be able to just get up and started easily. But browsers do not support TypeScript. And Dino's overarching philosophy is bringing server-side JavaScript closer to browser JavaScript. and. In this aspect of supporting TypeScript out of the box, we are kind of overstepping our goals. Mm. So, you know, we're supporting this extension to JavaScript. I mean, I don't know about you all, but I feel like TypeScript is eventually what JavaScript is going to be. I, I feel like it is it is kind of the next generation of JavaScript. And, you know, I'm very eager and I think many people are to kind of go in that direction. But it's a big complication to our system to support TypeScript and I think weakens our argument that Dino is web compatible. So we're certainly not removing it now because because uh, Dino depends on it. Right. Go back and start over, would you? But yeah, I think it would have been easier for us to get started had we not supported that out of the box initially. Listen to the whole conversation and subscribe while you're at it at changelog.fm slash 443. That's episode 443. Longtime listeners, do us a solid and share JS Party with your friends. 
In fact, I'll cut you a deal. Email a personal recommendation to three friends and bccjsparty at changelog.com will send you a free pack of Changelog stickers. Too easy, right? Go get them. Thanks again to our partners at Fastly for having our CDN covered, to BMC for these dope beats, and to you for listening. We appreciate you. Next up on the pod, K-Ball and I are joined by Jess Sachs from Cypress to talk Faker.js, open source things, why she loves component-driven development, and why you might love it too. That episode will be hitting your podcast feed next week.